So like Christmas time, you know, you can always tell Christmas is coming when you see the Christmas decorations for sale at Walmart or Costco, right? That's where I like to hang out. And you can also tell that summer is on the horizon when families start disappearing and start going on vacations. You know summer is upon you. It reminds me... Uh, we don't have any plans this summer, really, to go on any trips, but how many of you have ever taken a cruise before? So quite a few of you, and you still live to tell about it. See, we don't take cruises because cruise ships break in half and fall to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> They're dangerous things. It's not my idea of a vacation, drowning, mayhem, all that stuff. How many of you know where the word odyssey comes from? How many of you know where the word odyssey comes from? Not from Awana. It comes from the Greek legend of Odysseus. So would you like me to share a story with you this morning about a vacation that went terribly wrong? <laughs> Odysseus in Greek mythology was also called Ulysses. And many of you don't know this story, but Ulysses had been warned not to pass by a certain island because there were sirens there. And you all know what a siren is. It's not that blaring noise instrument, but it's that bird-like female. It gives all new meaning to the word bird legs. But they, were, they had the head of a female, but the body of a bird. And they were on these islands in Greece... And apparently there was three or four or five of them. And Odysseus was told that if he passed by their island, that their song would lure him in. And it wasn't the song that destroyed them, but it was the luring of the song that caused them to stay too long and their ship would be dashed against the rocks and they would die. And there ended their vacation. <laughs> so as legend has it, Jason and the Argonauts in Greek mythology passed by this island on their way back to Greece. And they took with them a demigod by the name of Orpheus. And Orpheus, well, his song, he was half God, half man. And so his song was able to drown out the sound of the sirens. And so he lived to tell the story. But Odysseus knew, I don't have an Orpheus with me, so... I don't have anything to drown out their song. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to strap myself to the mast of the ship and I'm going to plug the sailor's ears with beeswax. And so as we pass by this island, we won't hear the song. I'll hear the song, but we'll live to tell about it. Now, apparently, if you were able to pass by the island and listen to their song, that they would fall into the ocean and die. And so as they passed by the island, Odysseus started to break down listening to their songs and said, pull over, guys, I got to hear it. And his sailors tightened the ropes tighter to the mast and did not allow him to stop and listen to the song, and they were able to avoid it because of the beeswax, and thus they lived to tell the story. The sirens fell into the ocean and died, according to legend. Somebody even reports to have seen their body wash up on the shore in some other place. Well, I tell you that story this morning because there is a seductive song coming from the world. There is a seductive song like sirens in the form of science and scholasticism. And it is luring Christians into the rocks only to have their ships wrecked on the, on the rocky shores. This morning, it's my hope that I might get you to plug your ears with wax and in a sense, not allow yourself to be seduced to your own destruction by the bewitching songs of the evil one. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19, and let's read through this together. Psalm 19, for the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. 
their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising as from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This morning, I, I know most of you know that this psalm is about God's general revelation in the heavens and God's special revelation in the word of God. That's pretty much the standard way you would understand this psalm. But my hope is to look at this and to kind of contrast it with what is happening in the world today in the areas of science and scholasticism. What I'm going to do is look at this passage and show you two satanic strategies that really have been designed to shipwreck our faith, which we need to reject. We need to reject them this morning so that we will remain confident in God's revelation to us. And the first one is that science has assaulted our common sense regarding the work of God. There are two, as you see later next week, we will deal with scholasticism assailing our confidence regarding the Word of God. But this week we want to talk about the work of God. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 6. In those verses, as you look at the text here, David is explaining how the creation itself is there for a purpose. It is there to declare the praise of God. And science in our day, astronomy and the other sciences, and the wisdom of man have absolutely had a field day with us in the church in regard to what we are to believe about the creation. They have had a field day with us. We are so dumbfounded, we don't even know how to respond to them anymore. They have so set up straw man arguments and so confused us with scientific factoids that we don't even know how to respond to them anymore. Frankly, it's astounding to me what the scientific community and mankind believe despite the evidence to the contrary. It's astounding. Genesis 2-3, beloved, in your Bible, directly calls the creation of the skies and their host the work of God. They are the handiwork of God's fingertips. C.S. Lewis, in looking at this psalm, he said, it is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. My hope is that as we look at it, you will feel the same way about it afterwards. As you look at verses 1 to 6, there are two unmistakable witnesses to God's glory and creation that David is going to describe for us. One is the witness of the sky in general, and the other is going to be the witness of the sun in particular. And he's going to explain these to us so that we will give glory to God. All you have to do is look up. That's all you have to do for a moment is just look up and you will see the glory of God in the heavens. However, what is coming from the world now is that as we look up, well, we can explain all of that. God's not there. God had nothing to do with it. That's what the world is telling us. Is that true? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So the witness of the sky in general, verses 1 to 4, 
Look what he says here. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. This is set up in a way that it it sort of focuses your attention in a couple of areas. One is that the topic is the heavens and the glory of God and the work of his hands is is the emphasis of this passage. It kind of reads in and then it reads back out. It's like a funneling effect in poetry. And what it's basically saying is that the word telling here is the word, it's sort of the same root word that the word ascribe comes for. You know, a scribe who scribes the scriptures, the, the heavens are describing the glory of God. They're telling of his handiwork. The whole thing is talking about God. So David looks out and he says, all of these heavens are declaring the praise of God. And we look at him and we see a scientific experiment. David looked at him by faith and he saw God's glory. The expanse has also been translated the firmament or the sky above. You could call it, if you look at the next verse, he says day to day and night to night. He may be talking about the daytime sky and the nighttime sky. He's saying it all declares the glory of God. It's God's general revelation or his self-disclosure in nature. Romans 1.20 we're all familiar with that. Pastor Dave preached through the book of Romans. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Who's the they? It's us. It's us. God can be clearly seen in the creation. Clearly. And his attributes of his His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature can be clearly seen all around. And yet men reject it. So this is what is meant by the term glory. It's it's a revelation of God's existence and power so great that it should drive everybody to give praise and worship to God as they look upon it. Unfortunately, Romans does not end well, does it? Romans 1 does not end well. It says that man rejects that revelation and he suppresses the truth and righteousness and he refuses to submit to the God who created him. And in effect, he sets up other gods in his place. He worships the creation rather than the creator. And as a result, the wrath of God has been revealed against us and our truth-suppressing culture. So, look at the text with me. I want to show you three reasons why the sky's witness is unmistakable. It's common sense. It should be common sense to look at the sky and see God. And the first is that it's continual. You see that there in verse 2? He says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. These are two idiomatic expressions and basically what they're saying is day after day day after day and night after night all the time continually they are declaring god's praise the imperfect verbs in there also communicate the ongoing nature of their activity as well this idea of pours forth it's the idea of belching Belching forth, bubbling up like acid reflux or something. (laughs) It's springing up. It's it's like an overflowing spring. It's like like John back there when he eats lunch too late in the afternoon, right, John? It, It bubbles up constantly. Well, what knowledge? Well, it's a it's a constant bubbling source of God's glory of revelation about God. Just look at the stars. Look at the panorama of the stars. You can't help but see the glory of God. You know, we've set up the uh, Hubble telescope up there, right? And we look at these magnificent pictures of the stars. And we don't really even know how to explain them. We just 
We're just in awe. We're just looking at the pictures and going, I don't even really know what that is. But the knowledge that's talked about here, it's it's not only knowledge about God, but rather a special kind of knowledge. It's, it's, It's a knowledge of God's wisdom in creation. God has baked his own wisdom into creation. He has revealed himself in the created order. Turn to Proverbs with me real quick. Just go to the right and turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 and look at verse 22. And here wisdom is being personified in the proverb. And it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old, From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he encircled, when he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water could not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. He's talking about wisdom. Wisdom that was there with God. Wisdom God baked into the creation so that we can look at the creation and we can see the wisdom of God in it. Day after day, night after night, the heavens are continually declaring the wisdom and praises of God. And mankind looks at them and he tries to ignore them. He tries to ignore that God is there He says, I don't have to submit to you. I'm not accountable to you. I don't believe you. And so for all of his scientific accomplishments, mankind is still foolish. Unbelievers are foolish. When I was a kid, I used to like to watch this show called The Liars Club. How many of you saw that? Oh, very few. Wow. I'm dating myself here, I guess. The Liars Club... Essentially, what they would do is they had this panel of celebrities and they would bring out this object and the celebrities would take the object and each one of them would tell a lie about what the object was used for, except for one person that was telling the truth. And so the contestants had to figure out who was telling the truth about those objects. And they made up some pretty fanciful stories and some of them were pretty credible. But... This is what's happening to us, folks. Scientists are lying all the time about what the heavens are there for. The heavens are there to declare the glory of God. They are not a scientific experiment. And we keep soaking up the lie. They are a continual source of God's self-disclosure. They were put in place to describe and tell of the glory of God continually. And astronomers look at the heavens and they see stars only, not the Creator. But their witness is unmistakable. Their witness is unmistakable. Now, I'm not knocking science. Let me just say this on the front side. I was a science major in college. I was a respiratory therapist for 14 years. I believe science has made a lot of beneficial advancements to humankind. I am not completely knocking science. What I am knocking are people who, through their scientific discovery, discount the existence of God. And that is what I see all the time now. The mantra on the college campuses is, all truth is God's truth. Is that true? No, that's not true. That is not true. We'll talk about that later, but the reality is, God has baked truth into the creation and we can see truth all around us, but not all truth is God's truth. 
General revelation specifically defined means that it is available to all people at all times in all places. And so to take scientific discovery and to put it on par with that is a, is a false argument. You cannot do. Okay? If we discover something in medicine now, it doesn't mean that that is general revelation. General revelation means the sun. David is going to tell us about the sun in particular. The sun is part of general revelation. It declares the glory of God because it's available to all people at all times in all places. Right? So, so this mantra that is on the college campuses now, be aware of it. It is a lie. It is not true. And it is a destructive thinking. Secondly, second reason the witness is unmistakable is it's inaudible. You see that in verse 3 there? He says, there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Just for the sake of grammar, we should say, without the heaven's voice being heard. The heaven's voice is what is not heard. Emphatically, this is saying, there is no, there is no twice. So if you were reading this psalm, this would really stick out to you. You would be saying to yourself, what's the point here? Well, the point is that in case you're thinking that the heavens are talking to you, they're not. For some of you, maybe, and you need medication. But, but the heavens are not actually speaking, but they're talking all the time. That's the point the psalmist is making. There's no voice. There's no sounds. There's no words. Nothing to hear audibly, and yet they're screaming at us. They're screaming at us from the top of their lungs. No words spoken, yet everything to hear if one has ears of faith. One author said it this way, they have a language to be sure, but not one like the rest of the dialects on earth. They have a voice, but one that speaks not to the ear, but to the devout and understanding heart. So we look at the heavens and what do we see? Do we see stars or do we see God? An old hymn writer by the name of Addison wrote this hymn, and I won't sing it for you, but I'll just read you this one chorus. It says, What though in solemn silence all move round this dark terrestrial ball, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. I think that's what we're talking about here. Now, Luther and Calvin, they took this verse and they said, well, I think what this is probably saying is that there is no language or speech where their voice is not heard. In other words, everywhere in the world where language is spoken, their voice is heard. That's the point. That's what they were trying to say. Everywhere speech is present, the witness of the sky is heard. Their witness is inaudible, yet it's understandable by everybody. It's as clear as a bell. Turn to the right just a little bit. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9 here. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Turn over to Psalm 96. Just gather my thoughts here. Start in verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Stop right there. This 
verse is an explanation for the what we call the ex nihilo creation. That is, God made things. Uh, he made the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Look back at it with me. For great is Yahweh, literally, and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all the Elohims. For all the Elohims of the people are Elohims, which are nothings. They are nothings, but Yahweh made the heavens, and you would want to insert there, out of Elohims. God made the heavens out of nothings. That's the point. Very poetic, but very decisive. God made everything out of nothing, which means He owns it all. It all belongs to Him. Job 38, I won't turn you there, but you remember the story. God giving Job his little sit down and shut up speech. And he says, where were you when I created all of this, right? Just list after list after list. I did all of this. You had nothing to do with it. Who do you think you're talking to? The heavens do not speak audibly, yet they describe with clarity the wonders and glory of their Creator. Third reason the sky's witness is unmistakable is that it's universal. Look at verse 4. It says, Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Their line is probably not the best translation. The Septuagint says voice. The two words voice and line in Hebrew are very close to each other. So my guess is it's some sort of a scribal error in the Masoretic text. So the best reading here would probably be voice. Their voice has gone out through all the earth. I think it probably fits with the rest of the context better as well. Notice that their voice has gone out through all the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. They speak and they speak everywhere. Everybody has an opportunity to hear them. This is general revelation, which means everybody is accountable to it. Everybody stands condemned for the knowledge of God that they have in creation. It doesn't save anybody, but it certainly lets them know God is there and they're accountable to him. The point here is that the scope of their speech is universal. It extends to every corner of the earth. There is nobody who doesn't get a chance to see the glory of God. You know, man has always struggled with the reason for the diversity of the stars. He looks up and he cannot understand why there is diversity. He doesn't know what sets a star ablaze. He has no idea where the planets come from. He has no idea what holds it all together or where it all began or who began it all. Yet Genesis 1 gives us the answer very clearly and very succinctly, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means God existed before them, and that means He made them out of nothing. He spoke them into existence. Their vastness, their complexity, their beauty, and their sheer number all reveal the glory and wisdom of an all-powerful Creator. The truly staggering thought, what should amaze us, is that this Creator would lavish His grace and favor upon humanity. We ought to, this thought ought to drive us to our knees, that the Creator would have anything to do with us. You know, in the grand scheme of things, we are microscopic dust particles on a floating dust particle in the universe which is made up of millions of dust particles separated by millions of miles. And our own sun, do you know this? Our own sun is about 93 million miles away from Earth. Space is vast. And we are very, very small in comparison. My wife and I like to go to the beach every once in a while and just stand on the shore and look out. And this is just our planet, but... But we stand on the shore and we look out and we see the vastness of the ocean and it makes us feel about that big. 
we are small. Here we are with all of our great learning, and yet we know nothing. Right? The telescopes, they look out into the far reaches of space, and yet we still know nothing, and we have no idea what makes it all work. Or rather, who makes it all work. But listen again to one of David's psalms. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. That's the perspective that we should have. That is the perspective that we should have. The second unmistakable witness to God's glory is the witness of the Son in particular. Look at verse 4. He says, In them, that is the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun. In other words, this is where it goes down to sleep at night. The sun pops up in the morning and it goes to sleep at night. David says, let's get a, a little more specific than just the heavens in general. Let's talk about the sun in particular. If I'm going to think of one example of the glory of God in the heavens, what's the clearest example I could possibly think of? Well, that big fiery ball in the sky is a good one. I'll pick that. And so that's what he does. Of all the possible evidences of God in the sky above, nothing, nothing is more dramatic than the sun itself. So as you look at your outline there, three features of the sun's witness. First of all, he's going to talk about its character in verse 5. You see that? He says it's, a, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's as a strong man to run his course. He gives us two pictures here. And the first one is a metaphor about a bridegroom coming out of his bridal chamber on his wedding night. And so what is that? Well, in Hebrew culture, the husband and wife, upon being newly married, they would go off to what was known as the chuppah, and they would consummate their marriage. You know, the wedding feast and the party was primarily designed just to have witnesses there to see it. Just to witness the consummation of the marriage. That they would come out and they would hold up the sheets and everybody could see that, yes, the bride was a virgin and that they had consummated the marriage. They now had witnesses. And so this is what the illustration is, is that this bridegroom is now emerging from this kupa and he is now a man. He is now a man. He's gone from boyhood to manhood. He's now married. He has consummated the marriage. And, and his, he comes out glorious. The second picture is much the same way. The strong man running his course. Gibor in the Hebrew is a, the idea of a mighty man of valor. A strong man. A warrior. And it says that he is a, like a champion or like an athlete or this idea of a mighty man. And it's talking about these two pictures together combined are just talking about the brilliance of the sun when it comes up. It's just a, a glorious terms to speak of the sun's vigor. We look at it, we see it every day, and we go, oh, there's another sunrise. Isn't that pretty? Right? The sun is a very big deal. Every time that sun comes up, it governs the day, Genesis 1 tells us. It governs the day. It's a glorious ball of flame that illuminates our days. Its light even reflects off the moon at night and illuminates our nights for us. The sun is a very big deal. Just be reminded, scientists believe the sun is composed of 70% hydrogen, 28% helium, 1.5% carbon. It's made up of nitrogen, oxygen, and less than 0.5% other elements. The surface temperature of the sun is estimated at about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And scientists believe the temperature at its core to be about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Do you know that a single sun flare of a typical size is equivalent to several million hundred megaton hydrogen bombs. 
Any change in distance of that big ball would change not only the brightness here, but the temperature of the sun, if it drew closer, would end all life as we know it, just by like 1% change. Do you realize that? See, we think we know some information about the sun, but we, we don't know anything. The person of faith looks at the sun and they see the handiwork of God. Unbelievers analyze it and they discount the existence of God. What keeps it burning? Who put it there? How did it get there? We don't know. We should be overwhelmed every time we see the sun because it vividly describes and displays the glory of God. When we see it, we should sing praise as David did. We should see it and we should go, praise God. Another day has come. Secondly, the second feature of the sun's witness is its course. Look at verse 6. Just the first half there. He says it's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. From our earthbound perspective, it appears that the stars are fixed in place, right? The ancient mariners even used to chart their courses based upon the stars. But in fact, they're all moving. They're constantly on the move. Even the sun is moving. It's moving around the entire solar system and, and the solar system is moving with it. And it's actually said that wrong. The solar system is moving through the entire galaxy. Astronomers believe that it could take 226 million years to complete a full orbit of the galactic center. 226 million years. How do they know that? How do they know that? Has anybody even been around for a few thousand years? Have they had any idea? How do they know something like that? In their mind, matter is eternal. Did you know that? Matter is eternal. It has always existed. So 226 million years is a blip on the radar. But the scriptures would contradict that very premise. Matter is not eternal. God created it. Right? Now this could mean a couple of things. It means that the sun rises in the sky in the east and it sets in the west, east-west. The point is that it probably is talking about more the fixed certainty that it will rise again. That's the point, really. The sun will rise and it will go down. It's talking about the fixed certainty of it. We don't have to worry about whether or not the sun is going to come up, do we? In fact, all of mankind for all of history has never had to worry about it. And in fact, they never will have to worry about it because God controls it. The sun follows the path that God designed it to follow and it does not deviate. It is fixed and it is constant because God is fixed and God is constant. Interestingly, God's promises to Israel and His faithfulness are bound to this fixed order of the heavens, are they not? Jeremiah 31. Flip, flip to the right there and just take a look at this with me. Jeremiah 31. Verse 35, it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs me from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. For thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel 
for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God's promises to Israel are bound up with the very creation order itself. The order and the circuit of the sun and the moon and the stars, God says, if that ever ends, so will my faithfulness to Israel. Now, interestingly, on the other end of that is Israel's response to that. And pagan cultures, their response is to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And so Ezekiel 8, we find that in verse 16, Ezekiel has this vision of what's going on in the temple back in Jerusalem. And there he sees that the people are prostrated watching the sun come up in the morning and and worshiping it. Israel had descended so far that they had even adopted the pagan practices of worshiping the sun instead of the one who created it. I don't think we're far off from that, to be honest with you. I think we're very close to that. We worship. We don't, but culture worships what? The earth. Earth worshipers. You know, we don't want this earth to end. We have to, we have to protect it at all costs. We have to stop construction because there's a little jackrabbit mouse that we don't want to destroy or, or there's a certain bug in this environment that we can't do new construction or drill for oil because we don't want to destroy this little bug. It's earth worship. It's earth worship. Third, it's coverage. Verse 6. Let's go back to Psalm 19. It's coverage. He says, David, there is nothing hidden from its heat. So it's not its sight, but the sense of feeling that is heat. The heat is detectable even if it's not visible to the eye. So if you're out in the sun, and many of you have probably aired this way, you're at the beach and there's a lot of cloud cover and you decide, well, I can lay out all day, right? What happens to you? You get scorched. You get burnt to a crisp. The sun is still there. You still feel its heat. You still get hit by its rays. So cloud cover could affect your ability to see the sun as well as blindness, but the point here is that universal nature of the heat of the sun is enjoyed by everybody, right? Everybody feels the heat of the sun. Nobody can hide from its heat. And even the polar caps would be colder still if there were no sun. So the earth is tilted on its axis. The sun's rays strike different parts of the earth at different angles throughout the whole year. So the fact remains that even the coldest parts of the earth feel some of the sun's heat. There's no way to avoid it. Its coverage is complete. And I I think of cell phone maps, right? When you go to get a new cell phone and they show you its coverage, I only wish my cell phone coverage were as good as the sun's heat, right? Because this is what it's talking about is it's the coverage. The, The area that it covers is there's nowhere that does not feel the sun's heat. So how does this affect our thinking this morning? Well, the material universe is not eternal. It had a beginning and God existed before that beginning, right? Science cannot explain how something was formed out of nothing. They can't. Flat out. Science cannot explain how something inanimate can become animate. So a rock, you pick up a rock, How does the rock turn into something alive? It doesn't. It doesn't. It never will. Science cannot explain what keeps the planets on their course. Science cannot explain how several of the planets actually are spinning in opposite directions, which totally rules out the Big Bang theory, by the way. If the Big Bang is true and things were jolted out and they all began to spin in the same direction, they would all be spinning in the same direction, wouldn't they? How do you have some planets spinning this way and others spinning this way? It goes against the laws of nature. 
Science cannot explain what makes the sun continue to burn. And science can't tell us why there's so much diversity in the stars. We just look at it, and we just don't even know what to make of it. So here's the, here's the problem with scientific discovery. And again, I'm not knocking all scientific discovery. But what I'm saying is when it gets put on par with general revelation and special revelation, and we say all truth is God's truth, then what happens to the Bible? It always gets subjected to whatever man's theories are. That's what the problem is. A good example of this was the gap theory in the early 1900s. We have to explain the age of the earth, so we're going to look at the white space between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-2, and we're going to say that there was a big long gap in there somewhere, and so what happened was there was this previous race of people that God destroyed and wiped out, and so he actually recreated the earth in verse 2. That's why it's dark and void and, and all of that. The Bible got subjected to geology and everything else, and the Bible came out a loser. And this is what happens. This is what happens. Is faith versus reason, truth versus error is what it is. Carl Sagan, many of you may know Carl Sagan. He's some dead guy now. And I say that because Carl Sagan thought he had all the answers, but now he's dead and he's having to face his creator. And he said this, Who is more humble, the scientist who looks at the universe with an open mind and accepts whatever the universe has to teach us, or somebody who says everything in this book must be considered the literal truth and never mind the fallibility of all the human beings involved? Brilliant. Brilliant scientist. A fool. Scientific theories are subject to change. How many of you still have your appendix? For the longest time, the appendix was just an appendix. You didn't need it, right? And now they say, well, it really actually does serve a function. I had my tonsils out. How many of you have your tonsils? Tonsils serve no useful purpose in the body. Let's take them out. Oh, wait. Ten years later, well, actually, you probably should have kept your tonsils. Scientific theories are subject to change. They are not infallible or inerrant as the scriptures are. General revelation is available to all people at all times, in all places. It is fixed truth that never changes. So, for you scholarly types, it is exegetical evil to allow your presuppositions to influence your interpretation of scripture. What do I mean by that? If you are presupposing that the material universe is eternal and you allow that to affect how you interpret Genesis 1, you're in sin. You're in sin. Genesis 1 says that God created it. That's what it says. The Word of God is infallible, inerrant truth. This psalm David directly attributes the sun, the moon, and the stars to the handiwork of God. He created it all. He owns it all. He sustains it all for his glory. And as people of faith, we must think like David. We need to look at the heavens, not as a science project, but as a witness to the glory of God. This scientist, astronomer, not all astronomers are off the deep end. Listen to this guy, Robert Jastrow. He's the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He wrote in the conclusion of his book called God and the Astronomers, he says, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I love it. I love it. Yes, he's right. There's no doubt about it. Science has made some incredible discoveries. We landed somebody on the moon. But you know what? How many years later? We can't figure out how to get somebody back there. We don't know how we did it. And we have more computing power 
in the cell phone than we have ever had in all of history. You realize that? We can look into the womb and see a child in the womb before it's ever born. Stuff that only God used to be able to do. And we have that power at our fingertips. Yet what advantage are these gains if they lead us into the rocks only to have the belly of the ship of our faith gutted? What advantage are they if they cause us to lose confidence in God's revelation to us? What advantage if they cause your unbelieving soul to perish? We may not be as smart as all scientists, but we don't have to be. We just have to believe. We just have to believe. Scientists and science has assaulted our common sense regarding the work of God in creation. So the question for you this morning is, will you stand firm in the faith? Will you stand firm in the faith? Will you remain confident in God's revelation to us? Or will you believe the lie? Will you be lured in by the siren's song? Let's pray. Our Father, we desire with all our heart to have faith like David this morning. Father, as we read your word, we pray that you would instill in us a deep and abiding faith in your revelation to us, that your spirit would cause us, Father, not to depart from that which we have been taught, that which your spirit has taught us in your word about who you are and what you have done for mankind. Our Father, you are the glorious creator, creator of heaven and earth, worthy to be praised by all. And Father, we pray that we would praise you. We pray, our Father, that we would give you thanks as you so rightly deserve. For you are a good God. You are good to us. And you have revealed yourself to us in nature. And Father, as we'll see next week, even in your word. Father, your special revelation to us. And we pray that we would bank on that. That we would trust in that. That we would not lose faith and believe the lies. Father, grant us discernment in an age which lacks it. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.